Hey there, and welcome to Upfront, a podcast that features conversations with Connecticut-based top performers who represent the very best in their field and how they are making an impact in their industry and here at home in Connecticut. Thanks for listening. For most of us, chances are you probably have never heard of Bead Industries. I didn't, but I can guarantee you that you know two of the many products they've made throughout history. The first is the beaded light pull chain that you use to turn a light on and off. That's right, you yank it and the light comes on, you yank it again, the light goes off. The second are the dog tag chains for the US military that they manufactured during World War II. Founded in 1914, Bead Industries is comprised of two divisions, Bead Chain and Bead Electronics, and a wholly owned subsidiary McGuire Manufacturing Company. All of them are based right here in Connecticut. Jill Mayer is the current CEO and the fifth generation of this family business, who took over running the company from her father in 2014 and has built on his legacy by transforming the organizational culture through innovation, shared purpose, and accountability. We talk a lot about that in this episode. She's fiercely passionate about manufacturing and outside of her role as CEO, she is the president of Manufacture CT, which is Connecticut's largest manufacturing association, a board member of the CBIA, and is active in Vistage and women in manufacturing. So let's get up front with Jill Mayer and learn more about what inspires her, how you can transform a company culture, and what it's like to run a family manufacturing business. Jill Mayer, welcome to the show. Hi, Derek. Thanks for having me. I always start off with this question just to kind of get a sense of what's happening in your world. Where are you physically at this moment in time? So I am at the office, um, the main headquarters for Bead in Milford, Connecticut. And I'm I'm in my office with the door shut. (laughs) <laughs> no no distractions. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So give me the elevator speech about Bead Industries, because um, we'll talk more about all of that stuff later on in the show. But it's such a fascinating story to me. I, I, I won't take all the words out of your mouth, but you were founded in 1914, 100 plus years of innovation right here in Connecticut, which is awesome. Um, it's a family business. You're fifth generation um, uh, leader in, the, in that uh, company. And then, but the cool thing is, and I didn't know this until I looked you up, is you guys are best known for that light pull chain, which to kind of give people a visual who may not even know that, you know, maybe some millennials don't, don't remember, but it's the beads on a chain that you use to pull down and it turns a light bulb on and off. It's so simple, right? And you know, I think the saying uh, necessity is the mother of invention. But um, tell us what 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 does bead and, and and your companies do and make? So you're right. It started off with the bead chain. Uh, we have two divisions now: bead electronics, which still has the bead chain product line underneath that, and bead electronics. We make we manufacture electronic contact pins using the same swaging process on the same machines that we did the bead chain on and uh, those 
those electronic contact pins go into automotive sensors or lighting base, um, base lamps and uh, various applications, medical defense, uh, a number of connector type applications, wherever there's signal to power. And then our other division in Cheshire is um, Maguire, which is a producer of commercial plumbing fixture trim. So, and there was a couple of other divisions back in the day, bead, cha- bead tackle uh, and bead silverware or Bridgeport silverware. And those have been since d- dissolved. So right now we're with, we've got Maguire, we've got bead electronics. And then uh, while we don't manufacture the chain anymore, we still supply the chain um, um, using our South Korean partner. Okay. And the company pivoted during World War II, right? Because not only were you making the light pole chain, but you were you also did dog tags for um, soldiers, correct? Yes. Yes. We supplied um, bead chain, millions of army navy dog tags for both the canadian and the u.s armed forces and we even have we have this framed flag in our boardroom from um the u.s military with zero rejects from the from the chain army dog tags so that was pretty that's a pretty neat uh piece of history we still have yeah i would say zero rejects is a pretty good manufacturing process to be proud of <laughs> yes <laughs> absolutely there's nothing worse than like uh it's great but we, we got to send it back you got to fix something so uh that's pretty cool right yeah okay so let's go back in time before we get to all the the great things of today um where did you grow up i grew up well i was born in southeast alaska Mm. Um, in a town so small, we had to be uh, flown to Juneau for my mom to have a cesarean section. Um, but I actually lived all around the state of Alaska, um, aside from a two-year stint outside of Chicago, Illinois, but spent the, basically the first 17, 17 years of my life in Alaska all, all around. So. And, wow, that, that's amazing. So it must have been like on one of the islands there, the um, uh, Aleutian Islands. Is that what they're called? Right. Um, no, but no. we were near Valdez and there was the Aleutian Islands are um, there. We were in an Aleut village, which you would think would be in the Aleutian Islands. But um, Aleut was is um, their natives all along the Alaskan shoreline there. Um, but we were actually south of Valdez in a town called um, Tatitlik. Okay. So. So, yeah. And, and unfor- <laughs> unfortunately, a famous town Valdez because of the Exxon oil spill, but we, we won't get into that. <laughs> well, we should, because I was actually eight years old and, oh, wow. and, okay. and was, was the one year we were living there, and um, was when, it, when it happened. And there were coast guards and, um, it, as an eight year old, you're not, you're kind of oblivious to this horrific phenomenon. You really are just seeing, oh, there's coast guards and there's, um, marine biologists and there's all this cool stuff happening. Um, but we were seeing, you know, animals washing up on the shore, which was really sad. The bi- mm. marine biologists were, were dissecting them and looking at them, and it was very scientific. So for me, it felt kind of exciting. Of course, looking back on that, it's like that was awful, and we were right in the thick of it. Um, but when you're young, you're, you're kind of not, you're sort of oblivious to that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I mean, such a you know, disastrous moment in um, American history. And, um, you know, the one thing I remember, well, I still think of it whenever I use Dawn dish soap, right? Right, I ha- right. I have like, you know, the picture of like the cute duck 
on the front of it. And it's like, okay, if this was good enough to wash oil off of animals, then maybe it's okay to use on my hands and dishes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So what do you, re- what was, I mean, I've never been to Alaska. Um, I had the chance once for, for a business trip, but was told we didn't need to go. And I was really bummed out, but, but what was life like growing up there? You know, what do you remember about it? Um, it, it was amazing. So you're outdoors all the time. Um, huge sky, huge mountains. Um, you know, everything you see in the pictures, it's all true. I would say, you know, like every beautiful place, you know, it's got it's trade-offs. So, you know, winter, you buckle mm. down for many, many months and, um, you know, you learn to adapt to that kind of environment, but it would snow usually around Halloween and it would melt by May. Um, so we were in school earlier and we got let out earlier. Mm. Um, so we were in school for August and we got let out in May, but we, you know, we had shades on our windows in the summertime because it never got dark. Um, no. And it was, at the time, it just was life. So I didn't know anything else. You would wake up and it'd be dark until first period, you know, in high school. It was, you know, we would be, or maybe even second period, um, 10, 10, 10.30 that it would get light. So you're walking to school in the dark or you're, you're, it's pitch black when you wake up, you think it's in the middle of the night. And I only remembered that when I went back years later and visited. And I swear I thought it was 2 a.m. and it was 9 in the morning. And I, I could hear everyone upstairs having breakfast. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm in the middle <laughs> of the dark. And it's just something that I just never thought of at the time. And later you're like, that is not normal. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, for if you haven't experienced that, I did experience that in Iceland. Um, a really good friend of mine got married there. And it's weird. We were like having like, you know, I mean, the, 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 the night before the wedding, I don't know, rehearsal party. And, you know, it's uh, close to midnight and it's daylight, you know, because it was like, I think it was Memorial Day weekend. And then the wedding you know, the sun just kind of skimmed the horizon at like, I don't know, one, two in the morning. And then it was light again. It was just, yes. just yes. very weird. And we did have very good shades and, and blinds in the, uh, the house we were staying in. So those are much appreciated. Um, and I could just imagine the wildlife and everything was just, you know, I don't know. I just kind of picture, um, you know, um, I forget that, um, I'm blanking out the the sound of music, right? You know, just like <laughs> right. It's very similar. And honestly, the if you the deer, if every time you saw a deer in Connecticut, that's how often you see a moose in Alaska. Wow, that's how frequent that is. Maybe more, and maybe squirrels. Maybe it's like seeing a squirrel around <laughs> here, but they're everywhere. Um, yeah, get, I mean, I was going to say, do you get back there? Do you ever go back and visit? I did. I went back. 2019 for my 20 year high school reunion, even though I didn't graduate there. Um, I still went back with some friends and caught up and, Oh, it was like, it was like, it was frozen in time and you know, not, not a whole lot has changed. Yeah. You know, the shops are still there. The the buildings are still the houses, you know, we driving through the neighborhood, everything just looks kind of permanently frozen and it's kind of neat and also a little strange at the same time. And, um, you know, and, and everything seemed a little smaller, right? When you're younger, everything's, it's huge. Yeah. It's but much I, bigger. I, yeah, I do remember the roads 
being so wide and, and when moving to Connecticut, feeling a little, because I was a fairly new driver, feeling frightened on the, in the narrow roads here. Um, oh, for sure. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of different, a lot of different things that you, you learn to grow and adapt to. Absolutely. So, you know, you're a kid in Alaska. What were your childhood aspirations? You know, what did you want to be when you grew up? So, <laughs> and I've said this before, I loved, I loved singing. I was kind of a happy-go-lucky kid. I was, a, I was a tomboy as well. So I was always outside and getting dirty and going, you know, camping and all that kind of thing. And I also loved horses. So I, I imagined when I, that you, when you pick your career, you could just combine your favorite things. So I said, mm-hmm. oh, okay, I'll be a singing cowgirl which I guess would be like a female country music artist. I don't know <laughs> how that translates. Um, but <laughs> well, it's been done, right? The singing cowboy <laughs> in Times Square, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, but I think, I think, you know, I just, I just thought I wanted, I wanted it to be fun and I wanted it to be something that I enjoyed and would want to do every day. So mm. I think that was the point of that. That's a pretty cool answer. You know, some people are like, I wanted to be a fireman or I wanted to be, you know, I always wanted to be a chef or whatever, but um, a singing cowgirl. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, any brothers, sisters? Yes. I have a twin sister. We're fraternal oh. twins. So okay. she's taller and she's got different hair color, you know, green eye. We just, we don't even look related, but we're twins. And then I have an older sister. She's nine years my senior, so um, you know a larger gap. So she left home when I was when my sis, twin sister and I were in elementary school. Um, so the three of us girls. Okay, and what's it like being a twin? Well, even though we didn't look alike, we were still dressed similarly, and we still, you know, you still have to share your birthday. And yeah. what, what's what's interesting, twins that look alike they're very different. Of course, any twin will tell you that, mm-hmm. but it's more obvious when I think when you don't look identical. So we were so different and we still are in so many, so many ways. And I think, um, it's, it's hard to share a birthday. It's hard to share, um, a, a grade, um, just kind of, if you're developing at different levels, it can yeah. be tough to, um, to be compared to one another, but at the same time, you have that connection. You have such a connection where you grew up together. You always had a built-in friend. You always had a companion. So, um, you know, we had our rough patches during, you know, as as teenage girls and and coming into adulthood. But now we're we're super close. So, very good. Yeah, I have um, I have a couple friend set of twin friends, <laughs> and they just seem to oh, you know, there's just this deep deep, deep connection they all share. So it's fascinating. It's um, real, right? It's real. Yeah. Well, you shared the womb together, so um, <laughs> it makes sense. Um, okay. So how about sports? You said you were a tomboy. Did you play any sports back in Alaska? Yeah. So I tried everything. And with with Alaska, you know, again, the seasons were, were short. So a lot of indoor sports were mm. popular. Of course, um, you know, I guess out here – skiing is a very popular winter sport in Alaska the ski resorts are not close to a lot yeah. of the where, where where the towns are so it's not something where you play in high school unless you're right next to the ski resort so that wasn't an option but I tried 
softball, volleyball, dance team, cheerleading. But I started with soccer and mm. spent the most time playing it than any other sport. And um, and and that was kind of I was it was naturally good at it. Other things I really had to force it or or make it, you know, wasn't natural at necessarily. And I, I really loved soccer. Nice. I actually just went to a match last night up here in Hartford. The um, the Hartford Athletic hosted the New York Red Bull team. Oh, interesting. Yeah, which I'm not the biggest soccer fan. So um, a colleague was explaining it to me that it's basically like a minor league playing a major league team. So the New York Red Bull, Mm. uh, they won, but it it was just a really exciting game to see these athletes up close and personal. So, um, okay, so you played a lot of different sports, loved soccer the most. What would you say is the one thing from from sports um, that you've taken into your role today? So I was um, I was a stopper in soccer. So I was kind of the last line of defense before the goalie. You know, mm-hmm. not not letting anything get through. But what what I what I've taken from team sports, especially, is when you don't pull your weight, the whole team has to compensate. And um, and that even applied to dance team, frankly, because one dance move out of sync makes the whole team look pretty sloppy. Yeah. Um. So I think that I think that a real accountability um, for pulling your weight and 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 understanding that how you contribute to the whole is a, is a, is a pretty important thing to take away from sports. Yeah. I, I was a swimmer, which was a super individual sport, but if you lost your, your, you know, your heat, right. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, it impacts the, the team as a whole. So it, it is interesting. They're like, I, I think all sports are really truly team sports unless you're, um, I don't know, a track runner or something, but, um, anyway, uh, yeah, okay. For sure. So, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't ask you, but I, I want to ask what, what did your parents do for work? I mean, were they always involved in the family business or what, what did they do for work out in Alaska? Cause bead wasn't there. <laughs> no, no. So my, um, my, until we moved to Connecticut, we weren't involved with the family business at all. Um, my mother, um, um, was a hairstylist. Mm. Um, eventually she, owned her own salon and I worked there in high school. Um, and even actually in middle school was, was doing the towels. And so I started out helping out at a young age. Um, but my father was a, um, he, he was a teacher for a while. In fact, he, he taught me in third grade when we lived in that small town in Alaska, he was Mm -hmm. my third grade teacher. And then in fourth grade, he was my soccer coach and in Alaska in fourth grade, the the teams, the team was co-ed. So I've been used to playing, um, playing soccer with, with boys, (laughs) but, um, uh, but my father then after that, after teaching, he he took a job as a, a, an assessor. So he would assess property. And then eventually he, um, worked for the, the Kenai river planning and zoning and, um, he would assess river property. So, um, kind of interesting. Very nice. Yeah. My mom was a, a, a nursery school teacher, in the high school that I went to and you know, every now and then my mom would stop by the lunch table and I'd be like, mom, what are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) Stop bothering my friends and I, um, I'm trying to be cool. Okay. So, um, what, what would you say, like, what kind of values did your parents instill in you that you carry with you today? 
Um, you know, determination and persistence, I would say with determination, if you want something, go get after it, you know, mm-hmm. and persistence really, really quitting wasn't an option. Mm-hmm. And I, I even tell my kids that now we've signed up for the sport. You're going to finish the season. If you don't want to do it anymore, that's fine, but you're going to see it through. I think seeing things through, you know, doing, sticking, sticking with it once you've decided, once you've invested in it to yep. stick with it. Um, but you know, when my mom owned the salon, you know, she just had such a, a work ethic, a hard work ethic. I mean, she would come home at nine o'clock at night. She'd be on her feet all day. Um, and it was really my dad who was home making dinner and, and, um, making sure we did our homework and all that. So definitely that, that work ethic. And, and, and then later when my fat, my father was running the business and my mother was supporting him. I think the values were also, you know, supporting one another and that everybody's going to get a turn at, um, at running the show kind of thing and, and a support role and a lead role and take turns with that role, I think is important. You said you were in Alaska until 17. So this kind of all ties together. Um, your father and grandfather rekindled their relationship and moved back east to Connecticut to get involved in the family business. And you're kind of uprooted from Alaska. And I, I heard you were a senior in high school when that happened here, right? Yeah. So you come to Connecticut as a senior. Well, that's got to be like scary for a, a, a kid walking into high school for their last year. What was that like? Um. It was interesting. I think it was one of those things where I just, I didn't even want to think about it until the day, the day it happened. You know, I was just <laughs> in denial, in denial. And when it happened, it was a real shock. But, um, you know, it was actually a couple days before the end of my junior year, junior year. So I didn't even get to finish my junior year and or stay for the summer. So I was, I was pretty distraught about that. Um, but we'd moved around a lot, even in Alaska. So I, I was used to, you know, new surroundings and making new friends. And, you know, of course I had my built in best friend, twin sister. So it right. sure made things easier. But when we moved to Connecticut, you know, being a senior in high school, when, when all the relationships were formed, I think my parents were a little concerned. They did, we did end up going both my sister and I to prep schools and we, we went boarding schools and we went to different boarding schools again. And we were being compared a lot. My sis, my twin sister went in as a junior. I flat out threw a tantrum and said, I'm not going in as a junior. I'm, I'm not doing any more high school. This is my last year of high school. <laughs> so um, put my foot down on that, went in as a senior. Um, and, you know, at, at boarding school, a lot of students come in as juniors. Some come in as freshmen. There's a lot of, from from what I understand, new kids arrive at boarding schools all the times in different age levels. So that was a little easier than say going into a, an established school and being like one of the only new kids in the entire school. Yeah. Um, but it was a boarding school. So it was overnight, which was incredibly strange and a new concept for me. So, you know, being be, waving to my parents and, and sitting, sitting in this single room and in the middle of nowhere at this new school, it was, it was like, all right. So, one step at a time kind of a thing just you know I, I it was a little nerve-wracking I would say I probably had a couple meals in my room to start but then you know you slowly warm up uh, to the to the environment and warm up to people and and I, I ended up really loving 
that year at, mm. at the boarding school. It was Pomfret. Okay. Um, so yep. it was, um, so North, uh, Northeast Connecticut yep. and, um, a great school, small school. Um, I did soccer. Um, they were very competitive in soccer. You know, I came from, we were lucky we even had a soccer team at, at my high school. Not all the high schools did in Alaska. So I was excited. And, you know, I ended up being a bench warmer, um, on the varsity team probably should have been a player on the junior varsity, but wow, it was amazing to see the sports, really serious competitive sports out here. It's a different, different ball game from Alaska. 100%. Yeah, no, it is. It's like super con- competitive, but I think a palm for, I just think of like quintessential, like new England, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was not only a change for school, but a massive change of scenery. Um, Okay, so you wrap up your schooling, um, your high schooling and all that, and then you go to the University of Vermont. Um, I, I have a question. I, I wrote down why UVM, but I think I know the answer. The outdoors, the mountains. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, that's exactly it. It felt like the closest thing to Alaska, to be honest. And I really didn't, from what I, and that was from what I toured and what I saw. And I also just felt like the size um, the size was of the school was, was good. I didn't want too small. I didn't want too large. Um, and I liked, I liked that sort of Alaskan vibe for sure. Is That's Burlington, Vermont, right? It is. And it's yeah. a really fun college town area. Oh, um, yeah. My, in, my in-laws live there still up near there. And, um, so we go back a lot and, um, it, it's a beautiful campus even yeah. now. Yeah, no, I, 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 we had a client in, um, headquartered in Burlington, Vermont, Brugger's Bagels. Um, so I spent, went up there for many meetings and also, you know, did a lot of eating on Church Street. So it's a, it's a really cool town. If anyone listening hasn't been to Burlington, it's worth, uh, worth the trek up there. Yeah. It does sometimes seem, seem a bit like a best kept secret, you know, it's just, it's, it's next to Lake Champlain. It's it's got that beautiful, like you said, the beautiful Church Street area, and then it's just got you know several other colleges in the area and really good food and yeah, it's a great place. Yeah, great place. What well, what would what would you say your best experience overall was was in college? Um, you know i i did I did do I rushed and did did join a sorority. And, um, I, I did like the camaraderie there and, um, I ended up, you know, being an officer. So I was the VP of finance and, and did the books for the, you know, paid the house, the house mom and, um, worked with the president on, you know, setting the standards and, and, you know, coordinating events. And it was just a really fun experience. It was somewhat of a mini business, (laughs) um, (laughs) but it, it was it was wonderful to be, um, you know, it's not like a sorority in the South where it, it's very hardcore. It, it felt, it felt much more casual and it felt more, um, um, you know, kind of community esque. It's mm. nice. Yeah. I, Greek life gets such a bad rap. I mean, it's an entertaining movie, animal house, but you know, it's not, <laughs> not what it really all is. I mean, it's about that camaraderie you say, and, you know, community service and it, does teach, you know, leadership and organization and all that stuff. So, um, interesting. Yeah. In the South, in the South, right. Maybe it's a little more like animal house. Um, right, 
What, what happens after graduating? Do you just jump right in to the family business? Do you backpack across Europe? What, what happens upon graduating? So I, I got a job. I was working during college, um, hosting at a restaurant. And actually I got a job through a, a connection there, but I, I did get a job in marketing. I got my, my undergrad in marketing. Uh, it was at a biotech firm. And so mm. I worked there for a year. Um, and then I worked at a, cons- a consulting firm for a year. I did, I did a couple of different, you know, office jobs and I really did feel as though, because I didn't have a lot of experience. I just had that degree. I did a lot of, it felt like a lot of faxing and filing and administrative things. And I had already done that for my mom in the salon and high school. And I already, I had already kind of, I was, I was like, what do I need a degree for this for? So I was very <laughs> frustrated by the fact that, you know, because my resume was up against people with maybe no degree, but with 10 years of experience. So it was, it was just was seemed to be harder to get a job than I remember it. Mm-hmm. Um, or that it seemed to be for, I guess that it was, that it was portrayed that it would be. So that was a shock. So I tried a couple different things and I just kept feeling like my skills underutilized. I felt under challenged. And eventually I found, um, after two years of kind of doing that, I, I, well, for one, I immediately enrolled in Champlain college. That was why I said, well, I guess I have to get my master's if I'm going to be taken seriously. Um, so I started doing on that, working on that degree, but then I said, all right, I'm going to try something else. And I started working at this startup, um, just outside of Burlington and it was an online marketing firm and, and, and they were a consultant for Google and it was the startup of like five guys. And, um, we, you know, they had foosball and ping pong and we drank beers after four o'clock, but, but it was actually a serious startup. And I would just kind of help out where I actually didn't have a marketing role per se, but I was a support role where I was like, wherever there was a gap, I would help out. So I would be project manager. I did some of the bookkeeping, um, kind of support functions to, um, the salespeople or, um, the, the marketing folks. So I just kind of made myself, I learned as much as I could and made myself available wherever I could in that organization. And I had so much fun and it Mm. was like, okay, that was my first time where I thought, okay, I'm being challenged and work is fun. And that was by year three. And so I spent a couple years there and I was just loving life and enjoying myself. And And the pay wasn't great. Uh, you know, they were a startup. So, um, you know, the, the pay wasn't great for anyone, but we were all believers and we were all, um, um, you know, trying to grow this thing. So it was something we were all rallying around. So it just, there was purpose there. And then, um, and then that's when my father had reached out um, because his board of directors was saying to him, what's your, what's your plan? And he, he had wanted to retire in 10 plus years. And they said, well, we need to start thinking about a succession plan now. And it, it seems so far away. And I knew that, I guess deep down, I thought maybe one day I'll work the family business, but I didn't think that soon. And, um, you know, I was having so much fun in the job I was at, which I think, really what made it, I think that was important. If I didn't have a job or if I didn't like my job anyway, coming to work for the family business would have just been easy backup plan. But it really was, it really was a sacrifice 
um, for me at the time, right? Even yeah. though it was a good choice um, long term. But, but so so by the time I went um, and worked at the family business at Bead here, um, I had I'd been in five years in the um, outside of the family business, which we have this sort of unwritten rule that any family member who comes to work at the company has to have at least five years of out of experience in the outside and in their career. Mm, that's a good rule. Kind of, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, doesn't make it easy. It's like, okay, go get some experience somewhere else. And then you can come here. Um, gives you per- per- yeah, for yeah sure. it does give you perspective. I think, um, I'm not sure. I think the same thing applied at Bigelow T as well, but I can't remember. But somewhere, one of my guests um, had had kind of the same thing. Um, okay, so your first experience at Bead, what was that like? You you come in as the controller, right? And you come down from Vermont to overhaul the IT. Am I getting this this right? Yeah, that was one of the projects. Yeah. And were you immediately accepted? Was it was it? I, I asked that because sometimes family businesses, it's like, uh oh, here comes the boss's, you know, son or daughter. You know, right. I, were there was there any of that? Any challenges so with that? If there was, for me, I didn't see it. You know, or mm-hmm. or I felt very welcomed. Everyone was so friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think for for the people, for the employees who had been here for a really, really long time and, and saw my grandfather and even knew my great grandfather, I think it was, it was, um, it was a good thing because it was just more, more stability that the company is going to be around, you know, that, that here's the next generation. I think for my husband, um, as the son-in-law, I think it was a little harder for him. I don't know that he was necessarily accepted. I mean, he was, but maybe felt a little less so. Um, but because we both came down, um, we had just gotten married a few months before and had come down together. So, um, yeah, it was interesting, but, but yeah. Yeah. You joined in 2007, you've had multiple roles, right. Um, throughout the organization, but you know, we'll kind of skip ahead to seven years later, you're named corporate president. What, what was that transition like? Mm. Yeah. So, um, the reason why I was in the controller role to begin with was to make sure that I, I understood the finances and also because that was the role that was available. Someone Uh had just left and my father didn't want to create any position. So it was like, here we have an opening. It's in the accounting field, which I was not a huge fan of, but obviously with my business schooling, I had the ability to do the job. And there's something, something very um, refreshing about about accounting because it's the there's always a right and wrong answer there's no gray area you know it's like absolutes like, <laughs> right it's either yeah. right or wrong <laughs> which there's definitely pros to that for sure um yeah. i didn't have the personality to do it forever um i i, I happened to have been raised you know having having my children at the time so um it was a really good job you could do remotely or you could do at night you know if you needed to be um, distracted if you were distracted during the day so so yeah, so by seven years after that, um, my son, my youngest was still pretty little. He was about two. Mm-hmm. So um, it was a terrifying transition, but it was exhilarating at the same time because it was like, wow, the the, the career path that we set out when I first came here, this is really happening. And I think yeah. it actually happened before I even have the 
the the original document that my dad worked on with the board. Um, what what year, you know, this sort of path, okay, I would be finance manager, then controller, then CFO, and then corporate president. And, and it was sooner than originally planned. So it was like, wow, this is really happening. Mm. And, um, you know, I had, I had, with young kids at home, I had the mom guilt, but I also had this determination that I could really do this. And, and I, I think I was the only person standing in my way meaning that, you know, I sometimes got in my head a little bit. So I was, I was making hard decisions and I was, I was involved in high level things, high level situations. And, and I was working with the board on some strategic initiatives and it was nerve wracking because, um, I, just had to constantly quiet that voice that, that maybe you shouldn't be here. You only got here because, um, of your family. Um, they're going to find out you, that you don't know what you're doing. Um, you just gotta, you gotta be careful. You gotta look the part, act the part, but you're faking it. Um, and I just kept, it kept, that voice kept kind of bubbling up and I had to keep, keep it at bay in order to do my job. So it was a little distracting. You know, I was, I had some anxiety, uh, and I just kind of worked, worked through it. And it, it just, honestly, it took time. It took time. It took experience. It took conversations. It took, it took patience. Yeah. We can, we can often be, you know, our, you know, self-doubt or worst critics or, you know, tough, the toughest critic is oftentimes ourselves, right? Like I'm not doing mm-hmm. enough. I'm not doing enough. Or am I cut out for this? Oh my God. The weight, right. the weight of the world is on my shoulders. You said all that and I, it just popped a question in my head. How many, how many people um, are a part of the company? You know, is it 300, 500? So we have, yep. Um, much smaller. We have about 50 employees, but the way I look at it, those 50 employees have families, yep. right? So it, it, it is in, in some many ways, exponentially more than that because of the lives you're impacting yeah Um, for sure absolutely and then not not to mention my my parents you know their retirement you know my children's legacy you know their legacy my children's future so and my my niece and nephew's future so Well, I was going to say, you know, what do you focus on primarily as a CEO? No pressure. Um, <laughs> no, but, you know, a lot of people wonder, like, what does a CEO actually do? Everybody comes to them and they make the final call on anything. But what would you say is like your, your you know, what do you focus on? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've said this in other, in, at other times, but, you know, I focus on executive, my executive team, executive leadership. Mm-hmm. supporting them. You know, I hire the smart people and then I get out of their way. Um, mm. some, some people hire people just a little bit less smarter than them so they can be the smart <laughs> one in the room. I'm the dumbest one in the room, but I, I, I like, I know how to energize and motivate them and support them. And so really my customers are the employees. Yeah. Um, and so I work with the president of each division. And so each division has its own president um, on the culture and the team building and collaborating. And I work with our CFO on risk management, support her with that. Um, and the face of the company, um, you know, we, we have a pretty good reputation because we, you know, we're involved in a lot of community um, projects. I, I care about the work-life balance of our employees 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the strategic planning, I review the KPIs monthly, really just, really just make sure that the cadence is there and that we're, we're all working together. And I mean, honestly, there's no shortage of things to do. Uh, and I think for me sometimes too, is painting the vision and then aligning on the vision over and over and over because mm-hmm. in a manufacturing facility, there's 12,000 shiny objects. You're going here, you're going there. There's all these projects. And you'd be surprised at how many times we have to realign and realign because sure. you can just keep getting off track. So I'm like the, ali- the, the realignment champion, really. We want to learn more about you as a person, the choices, the things you do that make you who you are. So take us through your daily routine. Are you an early morning person? Are you best at, you know, late in the day, a night owl? What what are you? <clears throat> my, I used to be a night owl. My children have made me a morning person. So I, it's my new favorite thing. I guess in the last, you know, eight to 10 years anyway, I'm, it took a little while to get, to get that routine, but I'm an early morning person. And I mean, not early, I'm not up at five, but you know, six, six thirty. And, um, I, you know, have my cup of coffee, play with my dog. I've got a German shepherd. She's just an angel. Mm. Um, I do my exercise routine. Um, I put my kids on the bus. I walk, we walk the dog to the bus stop. It's pretty far away. Um, I got, I get my kids on the bus and, um, and then I head into work. Yeah. Any tips for a puppy? I have a, a, a puppy that's getting me up at 5 a.m. every day. So. <laughs> <laughs> and she is um, in her crate behind me right now. And I'm like praying she doesn't bark during this interview. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, no, I, um, I did. I did my research. Uh, former dogs whom, whom we loved just saw them and fell in love. And that was yeah. it. This yeah. time, this time we got to say, all right. What would be best for our family? What is best for our situation? What kind of a dog, like for our, the activities that we do, the yeah. type of space we have, what is the best dog? And I did it that way. And then I made sure that the personality type, you know, working with the breeder to make the personality type. Cause it's, I mean, you're with this animal for a really long time. Yeah. So if the better of the fit it is, the more, more rewarding of a relationship it is. And honestly, even for the animal, for the dog, the better um, life they have. So I think this time around, we really nailed it. She's perfect for our personality. And um, it just, it just brightens your day when you wake up and there they are. What's her name? For you. Her name's Shia. Shia. Okay. My grandparents had a German shepherd, shepherd named Liebchen. Very German name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, you, you you talked about kind of your your special morning routines: um, cup of coffee, go to the bus stop, um, walk the dog. Any any other things? Like, are you do you meditate? Do you like not look at email until you get into the office? I read somewhere that if the the your phone is the first thing you do before bed and the first thing you do when you wake up, you're not doing it right. So yeah. um, I do not touch my phone at night. Um, at least an hour before bed. I'm um, unless I'm setting my alarm, but I don't really think that counts. You know, your phone alarm. <laughs> and then um, in the morning, I, I do not touch my phone um, until a little later. But yeah, um, yeah no, I, I've got you know, I've got my sort of uh, during my workout routine. It, it's a great way to kind of level set, clear your head. I, honestly, they say that when you're showering or when you're exercising or something where your brain is is not running 
um, hard, that's when you get your great ideas. So I am, I'm the classic person where I'm on the treadmill and I think <laughs> of something awesome and I, I start texting it to myself or, yeah. or voice, voice commanding. Um, so, um, I think doing those kinds of things and I, and I do think getting some of that energy out and like, not that it's negative energy, but sometimes just draining your body of that sort of physical energy will, will help kind of focus your mind. I, I've never had a regular exercise routine except for the last couple of years. You know, yeah. once, once my kids were a little older, I was like, all right, I have no excuse now. I've got to do this. And it's been the best thing for me because <clears throat> it really does set your whole day ahead of you. If you can accomplish that, the rest of the day is going to be cake. Yeah. Now it's, it's so true, especially in the business um, I'm in, you, you can't force creativity, right? You know, it's mm -hmm. like your best ideas do come. There is truth to that. Like, oh, I had a great idea and I was in the shower. It's because your mind was turned off and, yeah. and, and, and it opens up that space. Um, yes. But, um, I, and I also love the, the story about the phone because I, I'm doing the same thing where, you know, nothing can ruin your sleep by seeing an email that makes you think about it all night or it takes away mm -hmm. from that or it could take away from the me time in the morning. So kudos to you. I right. like to, I like to hear that, you know, um, others are doing it. Um, okay. Where do you, where do you find inspiration? Well, and just a caveat to that, Derek, I will say that that took me forever to find that. So it's not something that I know other people probably see other people like your listeners, right. Are probably yeah. thinking, Oh yeah. Easier said than done. No, I oh, did it no. and until I read that book, Charles Duhigg, the power of habit. Yeah. I mean, until you make that habit, until you force that habit, it's never going to just come naturally. It's never going to just suddenly you'll have a routine. You have to force that routine and then finally it sticks. And then you're after that, you're golden. Yeah. So. But before you answer the inspiration, because I, I have a book recommendation for you, if you haven't read it, I'm currently reading Stolen Focus. Stolen Focus. Yeah. And it's like, you know, why we can't pay attention and how to think deeply again. But it's it's amazing because it does talk about this. And um, I'm not giving anything away about the book. But what I loved was the author rented a beach house in Provincetown for three months and went on a complete digital detox. And um, there's a lot of interesting things that happen. So I would recommend. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, um, I wrote it down. I've got it. Okay. Definitely. So um, apart from our phones and emails, <laughs> where, do you, <laughs> where do you find inspiration? Mm. So I would say professionally, I'd find inspiration from, you know, my manufacturing colleague, colleagues, mm. um, you know, I volunteer, um, with manufacturer CT, which is a statewide manufacturing association. Yeah. And there are, there are women leaders. Well, there are men and women leaders, but specifically, um, some of my female colleagues that are CEOs or owners, um, of a manufacturing firm, um, it's not for the faint of heart. And some of these women are just so badass. I don't know if I can say that on here. Yes, but you can. <laughs> they're, they're so impressive. And, um, I find inspiration from, from them, what they're doing and how they're doing it and, uh, their intelligence, their stick to their confidence. And, um, some of the things they're doing just really blow me away. So that's my professionally, that's my inspiration. And then I would say personally, my inspiration is my kids. And I know that sounds like a cheesy answer, but 
if it is I not. remember, it, well, no, when, it's not. <laughs> when they were like, when my boys were like four and five and you know, how much the joy they got over blowing bubbles. Right. Mm. I, I don't think I've ever liked anything as much as they like blowing bubbles. Right. And even as they're getting older, just, they have no, no boundaries, no um, limitations in their own mind and their, their ability to just let go and have fun and, and the joy. And, and I, I, that's inspiration for me because it reminds me that I was once a little girl and I can, there, there is still a little girl inside of me and, and there's still that there's fun and there's joy and, you know, it's not all just hard work and, 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 um, that, that, that there's joy too. And, and so I, they remind me of that. And I think that's good inspiration. Yeah, no, it, it, it is true. It's like, you know, we, I, I think good advice for everyone is we have to reconnect with the kid inside of us, right? You mm-hmm. know, whether it's just screaming your head off on a roller coaster or I don't know, you know, doing something that just kind of brings you back to those moments. Because I, I read somewhere that, um, you know, the reason kids have such endless energy is they don't have any worries in life. And, <laughs> yeah. And as you age and you have more responsibilities and things like that, it impacts overall, you know, happiness and energy and, and whatnot. So um, let's all get back to being kids. That's, that's, that's a good, good theme. Um, Okay. So um, you are CEO. Um, What would you say that your leadership style is like? I would say I'm, I'm collaborative. Um, I'm passionate. Um, you know, we get in a, our, our team gets in a room and we're, we're batting around different ideas or we're talking about things and get excited. And I, I, um, uh, we're all, we're all listening and engaging and everyone has great feedback and everyone has a different perspective and I love to hear it all. So there's usually not just one person talking and then everyone agrees. I think mm. that, um, and then the other thing I would say is I'm very honest and direct and, um, I don't know if it's because I'm a woman that, that I've got some of that empathy built in. Um, you know, I try to be as forthcoming as possible without being mean. Right. But I think everyone, everyone appreciates, I know I appreciate honesty and I think if it's done in a way that's, um, compassionate, but still honest, I think people, people would rather hear that than not. Yeah, for sure. It's like, at least if, if you're honest and you tried, you know, great. But, um, okay, so, you know, in that role, what, what would you say is your greatest challenge and how do you overcome it? Um, you know, we talked a little bit about ourselves being our own worst enemy, just kind of getting out of my own way. But then I would say, um, you know, surrounding yourself with positive, intelligent people and, and positive people, meaning they're looking for solution. They're they're They come with solutions, not problems. Mm. Right. Um, and, and asking the questions, asking the tough questions. Um, so I think a challenge would be, you know, facing tough answers to tough questions. Right. Or, um, facing, facing the, especially in manufacturing and in family businesses, things are done the same way. They're done 
they're always done this way and kind of changing, changing how things are done because mm. you're asking different questions. Can, you can sometimes hit a bit of a wall with that. But in one of my favorite quotes too, is if you always, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. And so <laughs> you got to do things differently and you got to ask the questions and you got to push through that resistance a bit yeah. um, as, as slowly as you need to. But um, I think that can be a challenge, but um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a must do. Yeah. Now, I, I, I love that quote. And I also, you know, lately have been saying, um, you know, turning what if into why not. Right. Right. What, what if sometimes is, has a little bit of regret to it? Like, well, what if we did this or what if we tried that? And, you know, you can always say that afterwards, too. But like, just turn it into why not, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what if we did this and why not? Um, and and. Okay, so this is kind of like the yin and yang question I'm going to ask. I'll ask the the, the yin, yin part first. Uh, as CEO, what accomplishment are you most proud of? Mm. Um, I, I suppose I have specific instances, but of, of, of sort of adversity or um, just kind of challenges or difficult conversations I've had. But I would say that what I'm most proud of, most proud of would be you know, showing up every day with with excitement, with new ideas for improvement, and I think if that, if and when that ever stops happening, I know I'll need to kind of step aside for the next person because um, if if we don't have that constant desire to grow and improve and um, change, then then you just end up kind of coming in um, just to come in, and it becomes form over function. And I, I think I think it it emanates and I, I do think it, it impacts the organization and, and it shifts the culture. So. Mm-hmm. And what about failure? And, you know, everyone, we're also afraid of the F word, right? Um, yeah. But, but, you know, so do you have a favorite failure? And what I mean by that is, you know, something that you were so sure of, but you failed miserably. And what was the lesson learned? So and and I, I want to give specific examples, but but I really do think this is this is so true. It's when employees leave um, mm. when they and I think whether they're a, whether they were a great employee or not, because we failed them in some way. Either we didn't challenge them enough, we didn't give them enough guidance and enough coaching, or we didn't let them go sooner so they could pursue a path that's better suited for them. And I think we still, I mean, we failed this year doing that. We did it last year. We, we And we get better at it. Um, but it's it's a favorite failure because I don't think it's ever going to go away, but it, it is sure going to drive improvement. It's going to, maybe we didn't recognize um, them enough. Maybe we didn't, you know, it, we, we constantly do our um, exit interviews with such gusto and, 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 and importance because, we failed them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's something that we learn lessons every time. COVID-19, the pandemic, nobody, you know, if you had told me on New Year's Eve 2020 or 2019 going into into 2020 that there would be a pandemic that shuts the world down. I would have um, looked at you like, what? (laughs) But um, 
One of the things that's caused, I mean, a huge disruption in a bad way, um, but it also caused a lot of businesses to pivot. Companies started working remotely and some are just doing that forever now because it's worked out for them. Tyler Anderson, the chef, we were talking about how restaurants, white cloth table restaurants had to pivot and become takeout places. Um, instead of dining in and, and companies introduced new products that weren't necessarily a, a part of their product line. Some failed, some survived, others, thri others thrived. How, how did the pandemic impact your organizations? Mm. Um, you know, we were an essential business, so we stayed open and everyone who touched the product, our machine operators, our tool makers, our supervisors, our quality insurance, they all had to come in. And everyone in the office, myself included, stayed home. So, um, I, how did it impact us? Communication soared during that. I mean, we 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 get an A plus for it, communication, and we've continued a lot of a lot of those um, communication strategies and and the constant and the different types of communication. But we had to constantly communicate if we were going to be separate from the, the shop that way. Mm. And, um, you know, a lot of respect and a lot of, uh, gratitude for the employees that had to still come in and, um, you know, compassion for the employees that had to stay home. Some of, some of whom myself included had to school their kids while they were home working, um, the longer hours, you don't have the commute, but it seemed like you logged in sooner, you logged out later. Uh, I think just the, the, the ability to work together and get through it, we, it impacted beat in the sense that, uh, we got closer yeah. in a different way. Um, but and we also got through it. Now, when you're a 108 year old company like ours, there's employees that have been here, um, when we've been through recessions and depressions and different things. So we've, we've been able to get through things like in this past, obviously we've never had a, a pandemic before, but, um, you know, there was definitely a confidence that, Hey, we've got, we've gotten through a lot. We can get through this too. So yeah. it was really cool to see. Comes built in uh, an organization with that much history and, and people that have seen it before. There's a lot of resilience built in. Um, but mm -hmm. pers personally for you, how did you keep it together during those times? You know, I I'm curious, are, are, are there like things or lessons from the pandemic that you're going to take with you later in life personally? Yeah, I think I think some of the lessons are regarding change, right? Um, there was so much we couldn't control. And I felt like me personally, I, I clung to the things I could control pretty desperately. Um, you know, so I think I had a harder time than I'd like to admit, at least initially I thought, yeah. okay. And even my LinkedIn profile even says I'm a change agent. I like change. I, I'm I used to change. I like change. This was a sea change. This was such a huge change. And we, you know, it was like, it was, it, we almost weren't sure how big the change was. You just never knew at the beginning when it was going to end. Um, and so I, um, it took me months to ease into the new routine, but I think, I think once, once you do that, you realize, okay, these kinds of significant changes shift how we live and we work and it's, it's change at the scale takes time and compassion. And so I think future changes, there's an element of time, mm. 
um, based on the scale of that change. So I just think we we looked at change we look at change differently and manage through change differently. And I know that I do that personally and professionally in a yeah. different way. Yeah, it really was like a sea of change. I mean, at first it was sort of like that panic moment. I mean, if I told you I was okay through that, I'd be lying. And it was, um, you know, it was like, okay, settling into like new things that are a little bit different. And, but there were a lot of things I took out of it. I mean, I started mountain biking and spending, getting outside to go for a hike or a mountain bike was like a treat. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, it was like, ah, oh, fresh air. And I don't know, it was like that summer, I particularly remember, it was like just a beautiful summer. There wasn't a lot of rain, there was a lot of blue sky. And I, I took all that kind of stuff with me, which is is staying with me. And then there were others that talk about it and friends and I were having these discussions that maybe it was the slowdown humanity needed, you mm-hmm. know, just, just to kind of pause, take a deep breath, realign and look at the things in front of you that are important. And a hundred percent. And I think, um, I think even relationships, like I, I know there were some marriages that didn't work out very well during the pandemic. I feel like ours, my marriage, um, thrived with, um, yeah. um, I always thought, okay, we're spending too much time together. It turns out we weren't spending enough time together. And so, and then, you know, I learned, um, how to play the guitar and kind of taught myself guitar. So just like, like you said, the slowing down and then the finding of the hobbies, yep. uh, doing things that kind of bring you peace or make you happy that you never took the time to do before. It was like, it was a forced force, like, no, slow down. Life isn't all about this rush yeah. um, and the next thing. So yeah, I, I agree. I mean, of course there were, there were horrifying elements to it, but the silver lining was that we slowed down and I hope that we don't lose that. Yeah. Let's get back to normal, but slow down a little bit, but yeah, I picked up the guitar again as well. So it's funny you say that. And, and one of the things we did too was like, we can't necessarily go out for date nights. So we dove into like, my father gave me his vinyl collection. So we were diving into old vinyl records and playing them on the turntable. I think we (laughs) we called it cocktail hour, right? We did that on (laughs) Friday nights. We'd fire up the turntable and put on like, I don't know, the Eagles or Miles Davis or whatever it was. And just like, okay, we're going to do this here. (laughs) That is awesome. I love that. Okay. So COVID pivoted our lives. It pivoted business. Um, Your organization has reinvented and innovated, innovated, for more than you know, hundred years, the light pole, dog tags for the military, contact pins for the fluorescent light, and so on. Um, your company timeline is is super impressive. But what's next for Bead? So we are doing. We've got a lot of things in the pipeline, and one of those, um, you know, with with the workforce, um, with challenges with workforce in manufacturing, um, we're we're making those jobs, we're changing the nature of the jobs so that mm. they're easier to hire for. So we still need the same amount of people, but we need them to have different skills. And the only way to do that is to upgrade a lot of our machinery. So we've got our next gen machine. We, we reverse engineered our existing swaging presses and um, they're better, faster, stronger, can, can be connected to our ERP system. So we're kind of bringing our factory into the into the modern modern ages and <laughs> we have to do that with a smart slow phased approach but um you know doing all of those things is awesome um it's it's 
it's a game changer for us. It's, it's changing how we, how we, our processes, how we, you know, interact with, um, different departments. So it's been really cool. And then the other thing is, um, a lot of new marketing initiatives, our products are really market agnostic. So when, you, when, when every market is your market, it's hard to know where to target and where to pinpoint. So mm. we're really working on a lot of those initiatives. Um, and then looking at acquisitions for growth, whether it's a complementary product line or a value added solution, um, we're looking at, at acquisition. So there's, like I said, no shortage of fun and exciting things we can do to keep this company vibrant and moving into the next generation. Excellent. And, you know, we talked, we touched on this before you've been very vocal about, um, you know, or, or you talked about getting, you know, how the pandemic caused better communication, but you've been really vocal about culture and empowering people. Um, you talk about it quite a bit in, in other interviews and so forth. Um, what's the one thing you do to keep a positive culture in the company? Mm. So not, not everything we do fits everyone. You know, we used to have yoga um, at, the, at the company for a wellness program. Not everyone liked that. We do summer picnics. We do holiday parties. I mean, a lot of companies do that. I think, I think what we try to do is do a lot of different things, change it up so that because we've got different generations in our, of, in our workforce, right? So not, yeah. not everything appeals to everybody. And you're never going to please everybody. That's not the goal. But the goal is to do things where you're together, do things where you can interact outside of your work function so you can connect and relate to people. And that can look so different, whether we're you know, bowling or picnicking or meeting up somewhere or uh, volunteering for a cleanup, anything like that. Um, we do also do quarterly plant meetings where in terms of the communication, our employees know exactly where we stand each quarter financially. Did we meet our goals? Yes or no. How mm. they're impacting our overall goals. So we've got our one, three and 10 year plans. We show that to them every quarter. We show them how we're working our way towards it. And ever since we started doing that, we hit our three year target in one year. Wow. So they're not, they're not only seeing what 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 they're what they're impacting how they're impacting it we're sharing with them and they're seeing it work right right before their eyes so um I, it's pretty exciting happy employees are invested employee, employees right um right okay so what do you do outside of the office that's um interesting or fun we should know I, I, i'm gonna take a <laughs> guess do you do you fly fish <laughs> I don't fly fish. I do love to fish. I do love fishing. Um, oh, cool! You know, fishing in Alaska, salmon fishing is in Alaska is very different from kind of fishing out here. And you got the the black, right. fi- the blue, the blue fish and the black fish and all the different fish out here. Um, it's definitely a different ocean and a different different thing. But um, you know, I do enjoy. Um, uh, we go to Vermont some weekends. I do enjoy getting outside hiking. Um, I'm trying to make golf work for me. It's pretty much one thing I've done that I'm not, haven't been naturally good at that I'm sticking with just because I, I don't want it to conquer me. I want to conquer it. So I'm just, I'm, I'm mad at golf. I don't want it to let it get, get me. So I'm trying to work on that, but I spend a lot of time, um, going to my son's, uh, baseball and soccer games and watching my son, my elder son play soccer is so fun. And mm. it's hard to it's hard to keep quiet. 
If you could give your 18 or 21 year old self some advice, knowing what you know today, what would it be? Uh, you know, I would honestly be something along the lines, uh, and it's very, um, what's the word, like cliche, but is it's kind of relax and enjoy the ride because I do think it's not, it's really not the load we carry, it's how we carry it. And it's like, it's all going to be okay. And it's so much more thing. Life is so much more enjoyable when, as you're doing the things you're doing, you remember, you know, why you're doing it. Um, we talked about this a little earlier on, but just, you know, it should, it should, if it doesn't bring you joy, it should, it should bring you purpose. It should, it should be something that, you know, you're not just counting the days. And I, you know, whenever there's a tough thing, I think I, I do like that phrase, this too shall pass, but I do think it can get overused because if every single day you wake up and you say, this too shall pass, this too shall pass. <laughs> you'll wake up 90. <laughs> yeah. You'll wake up 90. That wasn't the point of that. This too shall pass was for those few, you know, in between things where, okay, this is tough, but you can't always. And that's what, I think that's what they mean by living in the present. Living yeah. in the future would be always saying this too shall pass and thinking it's always going to get better down the road. Yeah. No, it's kind of the journey. And I know that I think I've heard all of that talk for so long and I'm finally starting to, it took, took to get to my forties, but <laughs> I'm finally <laughs> understanding what, what was meant by that. So, um, I wish I could tell my 18 year old self, but even if I did, I don't think she would listen. Yeah. <laughs> same same here i would be like yeah okay whatever, <laughs> whatever. um okay final question guy raz who hosts a show on npr that i really enjoy um always asks this question and i think it's a great question so i'm stealing it how much of your success has been pure luck and how much is from your leadership intelligence brilliance huh. well I mean, let's be honest with the family business, how I got here is luck, right? Birth, birth luck. But I think how I've stayed here and how, you know, the business continues to grow and profitably and, you know, navigating through the retirements. And, and we've had a lot, our entire leadership team, our entire tool room, lots of key areas of our business um, to have all those people retire and then to still be able to grow the business and be profitable and keep it going is, um, I think, I think that it can't just be luck. Um, so I think how you get there might be luck, but how you stay there isn't. So for all the other family business businesses out there or, or people who feel like they they just keep getting lucky, maybe, maybe to a point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely some, some great advice. Okay. So, this is the final question. Um, I lied. The last one wasn't. Oh. Um, <laughs> if there's someone from Connecticut we should feature on the show, who would you recommend? Oh, I mean, I would probably, I would probably be recommending a, a bunch of manufacturing company leaders um, because that's kind of my world, and it'd be hard to single one out. But um, you know, they're thinking of my female colleagues that are just crushing it out there. In, in times like these with families and um, but still running their business and doing it well I would say someone like Nicole Russo from Microboard someone like Lucia Furman from MDI um, you know and I can go on and on okay any final words 
I don't know. We covered so much. This is so fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thanks, Derek. It's a good conversation. And there we have it. That's Jill Mayer from Bead Industries right here on the show. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I sure did. And if you would like to find out more about Jill and Bead Industries, all you have to do is visit beadindustries.com. Upfront is brought to you by Mason, an integrated brand communications firm located in Southern Connecticut that provides communications ingenuity through advertising, public relations, social media, and media services. To learn more about us, visit mason23.com or send an email to hello at mason23.com. Well, that's it for now. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon.